Good evening everybody, podcast episode 15, or maybe we should call it the first episode of the second season. The following podcast will be a short one on pyramidal weakness. I started writing it on Boxing Day and finishing it today on the second day of the new year. In Belgium, these days have a kind of a Sunday feeling, combining waking up late and actively trying to forget that tomorrow it is working time again. The article we are discussing today is from two doctors from the Department of Neurosurgery in Melbourne, Australia. It focuses on pyramidal weakness and why this term is confusing. As an introduction, let's consider the differences between upper and lower motor neuron syndrome. The word upper refers to the central nervous system, and so typical symptoms develop after damaging brain or spinal cord. Clinically, these patients have velocity-dependent hypertonia, spasticity, exaggerated deep tendon reflexes, and pyramidal weakness. So there is some kind of consensus that pyramidal weakness is part of the upper motor neuron syndrome. There is more controversy if you can use this term in case of a lesion caudal of the cerebrum, as some texts state that it can only exist after cortical and subcortical lesions. From all tracts connecting central to peripheral nervous system, the most important one is without doubt the corticospinal tract, the synonym for the pyramidal tract. One might think that pyramidal refers to the fact that it contains axons from the pyramidal cells located in the cerebral cortex. But the name pyramidal actually refers to the neurons that pass through the pyramids of the medulla oblongata. And so, it is important to know that pyramidal tract is not the same as a corticospinal tract, as other tracts also have undeniable undeniable influences on the movement patterns of patients. We have the corticopontine, the corticorubrum and the corticobulbar tract that are projecting to the pontine nucleus, the red nucleus and the nuclei of the cranial nerves respectively. We also have the reticulospinal, the vestibulospinal, the tectospinal, the rubrospinal and the interstitiospinal tracts that are projecting projecting to the anterior horn cells of the cord. These are first line of the peripheral nervous system. Interestingly, these are the same cells that the corticospinal tract is also projecting to. So there is some discussion on what pyramidal actually means. But what can we say about the pyramidal lesion? A pyramidal lesion was described in Russell Brain's first edition of diseases of the nervous system, written in the 30s, as movements of flexion being stronger than extension in the upper limb and extension being stronger than flexion in the lower limb. This pattern of pyramidal weakness has since been emphasized in many textbooks as being characteristic of an upper motor neuron lesion. But using this clinical presentation to localize a lesion in the upper motor neuron system is untrustable. 
it leads to an illusion of manual testing, as a strong examiner can find this pyramidal pattern in healthy individuals too. When manually examining strength, we ask our patient to build up their strongest contraction and compare it with what we perceive as normal strength. But often we will find in normal individuals weaker extensors in the upper limb and weaker flexors in the lower limbs. For example, think about how much easier it is to break an elbow extension rather than elbow flexion. Or how strong a knee extension can be. It is actually logic that these muscles, which are the anti-gravity muscles, have greater strength as their antagonists and if strength is reduced in both flexors and extensors, a pyramidal weak pattern of weakness is falsely detected. Selective lesioning of the corticospinal tract in primates leads to impaired fine movement of the finger, but doesn't seem to produce other upper motor neuron deficits. On the contrary, a deeper lesion into the medulla that disrupts other descending tracts, as for example the reticulospinal tract, leads to loss of postural and fine motor control and flexion posturing of the upper limb. This indicates again that pyramidal weakness is more than damage to the corticospinal tract alone. One other finding confirms this idea. The fact that the axons of the corticospinal tract are perfectly balanced between flexors and extensors of the forearm, and this can't explain why a lesion in the pyramidal tract and the corticospinal tract alone would cause the typical pattern of weaker extensors in the upper limbs and weaker flexors in the lower limbs. So let's dive deeper into the explanations on the clinical presentation of pyramidal weakness. We already know that the motor cortex sends axons to the corticospinal tract, but it does more than that. It also sends axons to the cortical reticular tract to facilitate the medullary reticular formation. This zone communicates with the spinal cord through the dorsal reticulospinal tract. RST. This dorsal RST inhibits flexor reflex afferents. Studies in monkeys found that lesions excluding this dorsal RST leads to hypotonia, and including this tract produces spasticity and hyperreflexia. So before we move on, let's quickly repeat one more time. Remember that the dorsal RST, the reticulospinal tract, inhibits the flexors. Yeah? So it means that if you have a supraspinal lesion, it will release the dorsal reticulospinal tract, facilitating the flexors. The opposite will happen if you now look a bit lower to the pons. In the pons, the medial RST departs from the pontine reticular formation and doesn't receive any information from the cortex, but from the cerebellum. This tract facilitates flexors and suppresses extensors in the upper limb. In the lower limb, it facilitates the extensor muscle. Yeah. To conclude, it's the pyramidal pattern. And it is the opposite from what the dorsal RST does. 
So normal tone in arms and legs is only possible when there is a balance between opposite influences of dorsal and medial RST. There needs to be a balance between the inhibitory effects of the dorsal RST and the facilitatory effects of the medial RST. So a lesion in the pyramids will have consequences on other tracts. Like we just said, damage to the medial RST will increase innervation to motor neurons or a forearm reflexors. This tract that facilitates the um, flexors is now released. Damage to the rubrospinal tract will increase flexor and decrease extensors. Damage to the supraspinal system may also release a proprio-spinal interneuron system, leading to a higher antigravity tone. And a lesion that interrupts cerebrospinal cerebellar fibers that normally inhibit the pontine reticulospinal and vestibulospinal fibers leads now to an, an inhibited medial RST and vestibulospinal outflow. And this causes again hypertonus and a pyramidal pattern. So all these systems, the reticulospinal tract, the vestibulospinal tract and so on, they produce a pyramidal pattern of weakness because of their bias for anti-gravity musculature. So in the same time, they are part of the problem, why these patients develop these symptoms, but also are part of the functional recovery that we see after damage to the central nervous system. Normally, this text is now finished, and I would use the conclusion of the article, but I find the conclusion of the article not very clear. What I think are the key points of today is that pyramidal weakness is caused by more than only damage to the pyramidal tract or the corticospinal tract. This inhibition of medial RST and VST in combination with changes in the rubrospinal tract balance is partly responsible for the anti-gravity overtone that we see in patients with spasticity. And maybe the most important thing is that we should be careful to use our clinical examination to localize lesions. Knowledge of stronger arm flexors and leg extensors can prevent too fast conclusions. I hope you enjoyed this listening. I will keep on looking, I will keep on looking for ways to make neurosurgery more digestible. Happy New Year! Let 2021 be with louder laughs, longer bicycle rides, more new friends and less screen time. See you next time.